What if eternal life was a curse and the tree of life was reappearing in a place even angels dare not tread? Or what if you didn't know whether you had killed your own father? And most recently, what if you escaped from captivity but left your brother behind? Novelist Sean Smucker explores such mystic challenges at the margins of life, and he is our guest on today's episode. Welcome back to Fantastical Truth, the podcast from Lorehaven. And in this podcast, we find the best Christian-made fantasy, science fiction, and beyond, and we apply the wonders of these stories to the real world that our Savior Jesus Christ calls us to serve. I am E. Stephen Burnett, the publisher of Lorehaven. And I'm Zachary Russell. And if you joined us before, you probably remember that I go by Zach, and we are talking about memory today and how can we trust our memories? It's a weird thing to think about all the things that we remember, or do we? And this is episode 29, What If You Escape From Captivity But Left Your Brother Behind? That's the central plot of These Nameless Things, a book by Sean Smucker, and Sean will be joining us today on the podcast. Zach, we've actually reviewed a couple of Sean's books before. A few of them we will link to in the show notes. Uh, This is his newest book. It came out just this past summer, Pandemic or No Pandemic. I'm really glad that they were still able to keep up his regular summer release schedule. As we'll see in a moment, uh, Sean has actually gained plenty of recognition for his books, which combine that real-world emphasis on memory and do you know for sure that you remember correctly your childhood or what you believe. A lot of family trauma informs uh, plenty of his novels. Uh, but then he also has quite the magical realism edge, you know, where it's like something magical or unexplained or supernatural just kind of breaks into real life and you blink and you miss it. And so even the reader, while enjoying these kinds of books, may not even be sure whether this is a fantastical book. There's no dragons, there's no spaceships. Nonetheless, this is definitely something that fits within what we do here at Fantastical Truth. If you're a new listener to the podcast, we are a production of Lorehaven. And if you go to lorehaven.com slash reviews, you can see a new review every day of a Christian fantastical novel. Uh, We've got Sean Smucker's novels on there, and you can check his out and many more. We have reviewed two of Sean's books so far, and in fact, uh, his last novel from summer 2019, Light from Distant Stars, featured on the cover of our summer 2019 issue. And we've also reviewed his novel, The Edge of Over There. You can find those links in the show notes. Here is Sean's bio before we get started with the interview. Two-time Christianity Today Book Award winner Sean Smucker captivated readers with his genre-bending novels, The Day the Angels Fell in 2017 and Light from Distant Stars in 2019. Now, Smucker is back with his newest novel, These Nameless Things, a stunningly distinctive contemporary novel that grapples with the hard question, is there a limit to the things we'll do to assuage our own guilt and rescue the ones we love? Once held captive and tortured on a mysterious mountain, Dan was lucky to have made it out alive, but freedom comes at a cost. Left with little memory of the horrific ordeal, Dan remembers one thing, his escape meant having to leave his brother behind. With each day that passes, Dan waits with other survivors in hope of his brother's escape. But just as long-forgotten memories start rising to the surface, the sudden appearance of a wounded woman throws everything further into question. As Dan struggles to know whom to trust, he is caught once again in a paralyzing moral dilemma. But this time, will he choose to save his own life or his brother's life? A poignant tale of the bonds of brotherhood 
These nameless things will have readers frantically flipping pages for answers in this thought-provoking narrative. Sean Smucker is the author of The Day the Angels Fell, The Edge of Over There, Light from Distant Stars, as well as the memoir Once We Were Strangers. He lives with his wife and six children in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Let's go speak with Sean now. All right. So, Sean, welcome to Fantastical Truth. Tell us, how did you first discover biblical truth in fantastic imagination? Or so, asked another way, how did you first come to know the Lord? And then, what's your earliest memory of a fantastical story, like in a book? Well, I grew up as the child of a pastor. I was the oldest in my family. And my very, very earliest memories are of my mom and dad packing all of our stuff up in an old van and driving out to Missouri so my dad could go to Bible school. I was like two or three years old at the time. So my whole life has really been, you know, involved in Christianity, the church, religion in some in some way. I remember probably the earliest I was around four or five years old and I became very inquisitive about Jesus. So I would say it was at a very young age when I became a Christian. My imagination was really piqued by C.S. Lewis early on uh, in a Sunday school class. When I was a kid, we had a teacher who started reading The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And I remember sitting there and thinking, what is this? I've never heard anything like this before. I had read maybe the Hardy Boys or things like that. But when my teacher started reading The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, it just blew me away. So from that age on, I was reading Lewis. I was reading Susan Cooper, Lloyd Alexander, J.R.R. Tolkien. And that that's really where my love for books, my love for reading has its foundation in those kinds of stories. That's wonderful. So you, you read the whole Lord of the Rings series as, as a kid? Yes, I did. I, I read it many times. I, I think I was in fifth or sixth grade when I read it for the first time. And then I, at that point, I read it from the library. And I think for Christmas, my parents bought me the box set. And I just I would read it front to back and then start over again. I had <laughs> a copy of The Two Towers that I still had up until just a few years ago. And it was just falling to pieces. I mean, it was one of the first copies that I had. And I read through those books so many times. So, Sean, how did you decide that you yourself wanted to create these kinds of stories as well? That's a good question. I think I just loved going into another world, whether it was fantasy, whether it was sci-fi, whether it was just a regular novel. You know, I would read on the front porch. We lived on a farm back in those days. My dad wasn't a farmer, but we rented half of a farmhouse. And I would take my books out on the front porch and read for hours. I mean, after school, that's what I would do. Or in the summer, I would read, you know, as much as I could. And I just love that feeling of going somewhere else. And it wasn't that I had, you know, a particularly difficult or hard life I was trying to escape from. But there was something about those stories that really appealed to me. And as I started to get older, I would say probably around sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth grade was when I started to think, wow, what if I could do that? What if I could write the kinds of stories where people could go? 
And so I, I tried my hand at it in high school and was absolutely awful. Uh, I did a lot of writing in college that wasn't much better, but I just kept writing and through the years picked up things here and there. And, you know, I still feel like I'm on just a really long writing journey that I've, I've probably never get to where I want to be, but it's, it's just who I am and it's what my life is now. You know, you just love that feeling as a kid when you can just reread a book again and again, and you don't get tired of it. I see that with my kids all the time that they reread books or rewatch movies or TV episodes and it never gets old. And I'm just like, man, when, when did I lose that ability to just enjoy something over and over too often fall into the been there, done that category. So my, myself, I'm yeah. actually, I'm actually reading Lord of the Rings for the first time. Or, well, I, at least I oh, think nice. I, I read one of them at least in sixth grade, but I can't remember the whole series at all. So, Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. It's fun to kind of rediscover it as an adult. So tell us about your first novel, The Day the Angels Fell. I understand it starts with this question that could it be possible that death is a gift? So talk to us about those themes, uh, life and mortality and, and similar kinds of themes. Yeah, I started writing that book or had the seeds for the idea when I was in Istanbul. I co-write and ghostwrite books for a living. So that's my day job. And I was in Istanbul, Turkey, working with a man helping him to write his memoir as he was dying of cancer. So every day I would hop in this Turkish cab and go across the city. It was like a 45 minute to an hour cab ride to his house on the other side of Istanbul. And I would sit with him for like three or four hours. So I was with him for about three weeks. And when I came back, I think I was slightly depressed. I had sat with him while he's dying, you know, and, and it was something that I had never really done before. And it was hard. He's only, he was only, I think, 49 years old at the time. And so it really hit me because I was, let's see, this was in 2012. So, you know, I was 36. I wasn't that much younger than him. I just thought, man, life is so short and he's, he's got kids and he's sort of on his way out. What, how can this be? And so when I got back, I was talking with my wife a lot about that. And we sat down one night at the dinner table and had a long conversation with the kids because I realized I had been putting off this urge in me to write a book. I decided I wanted to write a book for my kids, along something along the lines of the books that I had read when I was growing up. So we sat there at the dinner table and I asked them a bunch of questions about what kind of book they would like. And, and that was really the jumping off point. So I wrote the day the angels fell the summer after I got back from that trip, which was 2000 and I guess it was 2013 was the summer after I got back. And so I ended up self-publishing that book in 2014, uh, had a really fun following. A lot of people seemed to enjoy it, wrote the sequel. But before I self-published the sequel, my agent ended up actually getting a book deal for the day the angels fell after I had self-published it. So it ended up being released by Ravel in 2000 and I think it was 17. So it was a really interesting journey. And yeah, the whole idea of could it be possible that death is a gift came from all of these meetings that I had with this, with this gentleman who had cancer. And the, and the real question came as we were talking about the Bible and he would always go back to the verse. I think it's in John where Jesus said, unless a seed falls to the ground and dies, it remains a single seed. But when it dies, there's a harvest up to a hundred times. And so that was sort of uh, the verse that 
I kept coming back to and thinking, could it be possible uh, that death is a gift? Sean, I love the idea of more stories made by Christians that take those concepts of mortality and death and resurrection seriously. Every October, I'm reminded that people have very flawed responses to the inevitability of death. I've been when people are even putting out Halloween decorations that are very flippant about skulls and skeletons and little tombstones with RIP and puns on them. And then we also see, though, during the past several months, even almost an opposite reaction to the threat of death is if only we could do XYZ, then we would never die. It would be thrown far off into the future and we wouldn't have to worry about the threat of death. So that alone makes your novels, like even when you are setting them in contemporary worlds, you know, the world of memory and coming of age, you know, that alone gives your books that edge of the fantastical. I believe you uh, said in our interview in the mm. Lorehaven magazine for summer 2019 that you wanted to explore the mysticism at the margins. And the other term that we've used, I think, to describe at least some of your work is magical realism, like in Light from Distant Stars. Uh, you have this uh, this other story that's it's almost like a dream sequence, except it plays alongside our reality of the story with this with this horrible beast and these two mysterious children. And yet the rest of the story is following your hero Cohen's uh, traumatic and happy memories with with kind of a level that enhances reality. It almost uh, probes out that uh, that that magical edge that is going on even in the ordinary world around us like what, what do you think draws your mind and heart back to that kind of style and those kinds of themes in your works wow steven that was great i mean i think it is interesting that you bring up death and the margins sort of in that same line of thought because what else what else do we encounter here on earth that is that is more in that sort of marginal space than death, right? Like the, that thing that we just, we don't know enough about it. You know, there's so much mystery surrounding it. I think it was really The Last Battle by C.S. Lewis that, that started my mind turning over those, those ideas around death and what happens when we die. And, and then I think as soon as you start to go into that margin, it's very easy to shift into the other margins, the sort of inexplicable things that happen in our lives or the things that we, that we see, but we don't quite see, or the memories that we have, but we don't quite have. So I, I think it probably started again in the books that I was reading, you know, by Lewis, Cooper, Alexander, Tolkien, and then it, it, it just sort of grew from there. So, and Lewis and Tolkien, of course, wrote straight up magical worlds. You know, it may be a little bit more mm. subdued in The Lord of the Rings and more upfront in Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia and in other stories. But in at least your last few novels, you have more of that magical realism approach, which is when something magical, something you're not quite sure what's going on. Is it a dream? Is it real? Is it a fragmented memory? Is it true? Is it false? Are we dealing with an unreliable narrator? That seems to be more your interest there. So I'm curious what draws your imagination a little bit further in those directions, at least for your last few novels. Yeah, I love that idea of just wondering, could this be possible in quote unquote real life? So that's probably why I usually choose to ground my stories in a mostly real environment, just because I like to explore that that question. You know, I like to explore oh man, did this happen? Did this not happen? I think that's why I'm so intrigued with memory, uh, as we talked about before with death, these things that 
sort of operate outside of our everyday lives. The things that are a little bit different, a little bit strange, a little bit inexplicable. And so I think that's what draws me into those spaces. And, and that was definitely with The Day the Angels Fell, particularly. The sequel, The Edge of Over There, was a lot more fantastical, I think, than the first book. But with The Day the Angels Fell, it was really based on where I grew up, you know, out in the country, sort of the middle of nowhere, where a kid could just get up to whatever. And especially in those days, I mean, I would just, I would leave the house when I got home from school. I would throw my stuff down, leave the house, go down to the creek and play for a couple of hours, usually with one or two friends. And, you know, the only rule was when it starts to get dark, come home. And that was really the kind of world that I was trying to tap into in that book was a very free world where where a kid can just encounter things that that don't make sense. And that was, I guess that was sort of where I was also going with Light from Distant Stars, but I did it through more through his memory. And it wasn't necessarily in the country all the time, but I just, I love those, I love those strange moments and especially as they become memories and we wonder did that really happen could that really have happened those are the things that intrigue me as you were talking earlier sean i was thinking about this idea of is death a gift we are living in a time where death and suffering and sickness is obviously on everyone's mind and and so i i like that these stories really tackle that and from a modern day perspective I'm really into sci-fi, and so my mind immediately went to sci-fi films about, or movies, or shows about transhumanism, where people try to download their minds into a computer mm. or into a robot. What the interesting thing though is, a lot of these stories tend to have more of a horror bent to them, and kind of showing how this doesn't really work. You know, man mm. is not meant to live forever. And my oldest daughter, my 13-year-old, read. The, the book called Tuck Everlasting, it, it dealt with a similar theme that maybe immortality would not be such a great thing if we were able to magically attain it. And, and that was basically set in the modern day, or at least the modern day when it was written. It's just interesting that there is that reoccurring theme all throughout literature and film that maybe transcendence would, would go horribly wrong. And But I like that you are tackling this from a more positive Ben it sounds like is that right yeah i think i think that we as humans just have to come to terms with death with this idea that well that our bodies are going to die you know and it's something that if you look around people just are very uncomfortable with that idea um and i think we have been for for a long time it is frightening when you think about the links that people might go to, to try to avoid that, you know, to try and avoid dying. And I think we do it every day in, in smaller circumstances. So there are many different kinds of death, right? Like there are disappointments, there's loss, we lose jobs, we lose opportunities. You know, we're experiencing a lot of that with, with COVID. We've lost many, many things. And it doesn't have to be a physical death. And so I think if we can come to terms with this thought that, that death is simply a part of the process, especially for Christians, right, who, 
I mean, our faith is based on these four pillars of incarnation, death, resurrection, and redemption. I don't know if we can ever get to the place where we embrace it. Maybe we can, but I think at least come to terms with it and understand that it's just part of the process. It's part of who we are. It's part of life. I think that's so important. Well, it is something that does not belong here, but it is something that God has appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. I mean, originally, people and animals as well would not have had to die, but after man's rebellion, that became an inevitable reality, and yet in Christ, we may grieve, but we do not grieve as those who have no hope. It is something that we can, in a sense, anticipate while still being at least a little bit nervous about what circumstances would lead toward that inevitable end, which in the gospel worldview is not the end, but just the beginning. As Lewis, of course, famously wrote in The Last Battle, uh, just the, uh, the adventures that we have in this world are just the title page and the first sentence, and then eternity goes on and on, and that's the story that is even better, in which every chapter is better than the one before. I would notice actually, uh, Sean, a few themes of death and loss in the description for your latest novel, These Nameless Things, in which you have the tale of two brothers where one escapes from captivity after suffering a loss of freedom and then has to leave his brother behind. So a lot of similar ideas type there about uh, memory and the uncertainty and the family drama as well. I'm curious which images and ideas drove you to create uh, this story. Well, I have always been fascinated with Dante's Inferno. And somewhere along the lines, it was about 10 years ago, I started to just play around with what Dante had created in my mind, wondering, you know, what if people could escape the Inferno? So within his trilogy, at least with Purgatorio, people are advancing, you know, so within Purgatorio, People are making their way up the mountain. There's some movement there. But within his inferno, there is no room for movement. And I was just sort of curious as to what if what if people could escape? And so this story came to me, well, what if what if there was one person left in the inferno? And so that that question really was sort of the basis for these nameless things. And that and that's where you find Dan in the beginning waiting for his brother. He has escaped the mountain where all these horrible things had been happening. As he's waiting, that's when memory starts to come into play. And I'm also, I'm so fascinated with memory. Anyone who reads anything I write realizes that I'm borderline obsessed with memory simply because of how we create and process memories, I think is one of the most fascinating things. But within this little town, people were starting to recover their memory. So they had forgotten a huge block of time. And as their memories start to come back, they realize that Dan is not the only person waiting for his brother. Actually, everybody in the town, which there are nine people left, all nine of them are waiting for Dan's brother for a specific reason. Um, and that starts to unfold. The, the story behind that starts to unfold along with the book. Uh, so it was really the Inferno that sort of got me going. Well, there's so much intertwining of memory and experience and belief. Uh, I think a lot of Christians who, for example, are trying to teach the gospel and understand belief systems that are different from the gospel. We may talk about the facts and the apologetics and all of that, but sometimes we leave out the role that memory has. And because people are imaginative creatures and because we are flawed and we exist in a groaning world, 
where even physiologically our brains may fail us. I mean, those missing memories or those reinterpreted memories can form an entire world that we perceive around us. Mm -hmm. And I think it's helpful then in fantasy to raise those questions, to challenge our perceptions of ourselves. Wait a minute. Are we a reliable narrator for retelling our <laughs> own life experience, for example, or might there be something else going on? Yeah, I can tell you based on experience that we are not reliable narrators, at least in many cases. As I make a living as a co-writer and a ghostwriter, I'm continually astounded at how often people will have completely counter memories of the very same incident. So one of them is just completely wrong. You know, one of them is not remembering the way things happened. I don't know which one it is, but somebody is wrong. So I had this this couple or sorry, this woman who I was helping to write her memoir. She was in her mid 90s. And when her husband died, she remembered first dropping her son off at baseball practice and then driving down to the marina where she was going to meet her husband. And when she arrived there, she realized that he had had a stroke and then he went on to die in the hospital. This was back in like the 40s, maybe 40s or 50s. Her son, who would have been eight or nine or 10 at the time, said, as we were having this interview, she was literally telling me the story in her house and her son who was sitting there with us said, mom, no, 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 that's not how it happened. I was with you. I remember going down to the marina with you and looking out and seeing dad and seeing them bring him in on a stretcher, put him in an ambulance and then drive to the hospital. And she said, no, 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 you were not there. You were at baseball practice. And he said, no, mom, I was there. And so as I have more and more of these experiences with people who I'm writing for, people who are telling me their life stories, and you have these unresolvable differences when it comes to memory, it started to raise a lot of questions in my own mind about the memories that I have, about events that I think happened, and how those perceived memories or perceived events have a huge impact on who I am and what I believe and how I feel about certain people. Uh, and that really came into play, especially in Light from Distant Stars, but also in These Nameless Things, this idea that the way that we remember things often has a much bigger impact on who we are and how we feel about the past than what actually happened. And I, I see this even with people who went to the same church that I went to, you know? So we, we both grew up same ages, went to the same church, had virtually the same experiences. I look back on my childhood church with, no, with almost nothing but fondness. I mean, it's just a really sweet time in my memory. But I have friends who grew up in that church who are no longer Christians, who have horrible memories of, of that time and, and cannot think of it in any way that's positive. And so it's just really challenged me and how much weight I give my memories and how I think about my memories and how I use my memories to, to create who I am today. It's, it's such a fascinating thing. Well, and there's a really fun version of this, which is the Mandela effect. I was just thinking of that. Yeah. Because <laughs> it's blown up to the cultural level. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Th this, uh, there, there was a recent iteration of this I saw on Twitter about the fruit of the loom. You know, do, do you remember Fruit of the Loom, the logo with the cornucopia on it or not? Yes. And people swear up in, and myself included, swear that the cornucopia was always there. And yet you can 
look back in all of these pictures and in you know the internet archive or whatever and it's not there it was never there <laughs> and and it just it i mean that's just one of a hundred examples you know yeah, that it just is, drives that is people bizarre. crazy someone has gone yeah. back it's the doctor in his tardis has <laughs> gone back he has interfered with a non-fixed point in time uh, at the fruit of the loom factory which was being invaded by shape-shifting aliens who really love cotton stretchy things and, well, and the doctor, this was a consequence of this interference. <laughs> the doctor needs to concern himself less with underwear and start working on 2020 <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. Unfortunately, I think that we uh, behold the hubris of the Time Lords because the doctor has been trying to fix right. what went wrong with 2020 and instead we get this. Keeps making it worse. That's why the murder hornets showed up and then just mysteriously disappeared. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah, we fired those writers. They they didn't know how to land that particular subplot. <laughs> well, and, and then there's a you know, there's a more serious example of this in film, the one of my favorite movies, Inception. You know, this mm. idea of how do you implant an idea in someone's yes. mind? It's through a dream within a dream within a dream, using a story and getting them to kind of think of it themselves. And and now we're, uh, I, I've been reading some articles that we are actually on the cusp of being able to do this in part false memories. And so please, let's not. We, we already have this challenge going yeah. on in politics where that, that unreliable <laughs> narrator at the individual level has been expanded then to a, a collection of mm. unreliable narrators, some intentional and some not uh, right. at the larger sociopolitical level. Sean, we've already crossed over a little bit into our next question, but many of your books read almost like memoirs, uh, particularly when in that intimate first person uh, with your characters. I'm just curious, I and mean, we may have already crossed over into this, how much your experience with writing memoirs, you know, from the, the person you mentioned uh, who is near death, as well as maybe some others, it just it sounds like your real life experience here in aiding in these nonfiction genres uh, has empowered the creation of these stories that that do have that that edge to them and not just the fantastical edge but it feels real while still feeling very uh fantastical i think it does bleed into a lot of the things we've already talked about with the reliability of the first person narrator as i speak with more and more people i realize that at, whenever someone is telling me their story they have an agenda and I don't mean that. I know that comes across super negative, but I don't mean that necessarily in a negative way. I think it's just that whenever we tell a story without even necessarily knowing it, we're trying to communicate something, you know? And so a lot of the people who I work with who are self-publishing their memoirs simply for their families, they're trying to assign meaning to their life. You know, they're going back and they're, they're reliving their childhood, their adolescence, their young adulthood, the accomplishments that they've had, the mistakes that they've made. And I think really what they're trying to do is, is put some meaning in there. So Sean, something you said earlier about you and some friends going to the same church, but coming away with very different impressions about your time there, even though you experienced the same thing, you know, it kind of taps in this idea that we have selective memory. You know, even if we experience the exact same things, we we choose which of those memories to focus on and even which ones to emphasize or even kind of suppress or 
whether it's a good memory or a bad memory, we we can kind of get rid of certain things. I, I think all the time about this verse where in Revelation uh, is it 18 or 19 where it says, or 21 where it says many books were opened, you know, and these are like the records of mm. everyone's life. Mm. And, and then, you know, then a, a final book is open, which is the lamb's book of life. And everyone whose name is in that book goes to be with the lamb. But this whole idea of books being written about our lives, there really does seem to be the case that, I, I don't know if it's literal books, okay, but it really does seem to be the case that exact records of our lives are being written all the time, and it, and we're going to get to read those, and it's going to be an interesting experience, I think, for all of us, like going, oh yeah, I guess I wasn't really uh, remembering that correctly, or I guess I wasn't seeing the whole picture or whatever. And so I, I like this approach you're taking of, of telling stories through a, a memoir style and, and really getting us to think about the everyday lives we read or the everyday lives we live being stories that we're going to read at some point. So it's kind of interesting to see that tie together. So what, what's coming next for you in terms of nonfiction and fiction that you are writing? Yes, I just handed in a novel that will come out next summer. Do we have a title? I guess I shouldn't say because I'm not sure if it's final or not. But again, you know, guys, I'm becoming very predictable. There's a gentleman who receives a terminal diagnosis and he has guardianship of his granddaughter. Uh, The father is out of the picture. So you have this grandfather who's raising his granddaughter. He receives a terminal diagnosis and he decides that the best thing that he can do is take his granddaughter back to the very small town where he grew up and hopefully he can find her someone there who will take care of her, who will take her in. But waiting for him back where he grew up are a lot of memories. There's a lot of confusion in his mind. There's a lot of questions around uh, the death of his wife and what exactly happened 40 years ago. Uh, So he arrives at this town with his granddaughter, and at that point, his granddaughter begins having some really interesting experiences that sort of border on the unreal. And those experiences begin to speak into uh, this guy's history, his memories, and also his illness. So that book comes out next summer, and beyond that, I'm not sure what, what will come after that. But we'll check in with you next summer and then see what other (laughs) manuscript you will have handed in. You seem to be working exactly a year in advance, so I have no doubt that you'll be able to continue creating these ideas. How can fans connect with your ongoing work so they'll be among the first to know the title uh, and the other ideas that you have in the future? And how can fans also connect uh, with your podcast that you've been doing? Yeah, so um, you can find me online at seansmucker.com. That's S-H-A-W-N smucker.com. Our podcast, my wife and I are doing a podcast called The Stories Between Us, and it's mostly about creativity and writing. So that's another fun thing going on right now. Uh, I'm on Twitter, Facebook. I'm a pretty easy person to find, and I love taking questions or comments. So if anyone wants to reach out and contact me, please go ahead and do so. Thank you, Sean. It was great having you on the show today. Thanks a lot, guys. It was great being back. I really appreciate it. All right. Well, let's pop open the mailbag for our fantastic fans. Stephen, what do we got here? 
Well, we got plenty of feedback after our last episode, 28, of the one about discerning The Chosen, the miniseries about the life of Christ and his apostles that is biblical fiction. Plenty of our listeners had lots to say about that, including Andrea, who wrote with this note, quote, I am so glad I listened to this before I watched The Chosen. I think it prepared me well. Also, I'm so excited to hear your talk with Sean Smucker. Thank you for all your wonderful episodes. End quote. And thank you for that encouragement, Andrea. Hope you enjoyed the episode that you are presumably listening to right now with the just recently concluded interview with Sean. And Stephen, we got a comment on our YouTube channel. This was for episode 26, which was our Narnia series. How do we defeat the top seven myths about the Chronicles of Narnia? And this was our second episode in that series. In that one, we tackled the myth uh, that Queen Susan fell away and will never return to Narnia again. And so we address Lewis's critics who bemoan the fact that we never see Susan enter Aslan's country and their assumptions that Susan wasn't saved because she likes makeup. So responding to our dismantling of this myth, Everandi says, quote, Can I like this more than once? Like a hundred times? I'm so tired of people acting like Lewis was this horrible sexist person because of what happened with Susan. If I could get everyone who believes she was denied salvation for growing up or liking sex to listen to this, I would. You explain Lewis's real meaning so well, end quote. Thank you, Everandi. And by the way, I hope I'm saying your name right. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for sharing. That would really help us to bring new listeners onto the show. And to you, our listener, to hear more about how we, and more importantly, how C.S. Lewis himself responded to this myth and six others, check out episode 26 of this podcast. And once more for our last episode, episode 28, about discerning the chosen and other works of biblical fiction, uh, we got some traffic on Twitter, uh, thanks to at Theophany Media, who asked, quote, on the most recent episode of the Fantastical Truth podcast by Lorehaven, they discussed biblical fiction, narratives that expand or add to what is shown in scripture. Do you think Christians are allowed to create slash consume this type of art? Why or why not? End quote. Uh, to this, at Richie Paula replied, quote, as long as it's clearly inspired by, rather than attempting to be a substitute for scripture, I don't see why not. I think the word-for-word Bible comic is doing an excellent job of visually expanding upon the Bible using historical and archaeological resources for accuracy, end quote. And I think that's a good point about good biblical fiction, whether it is a live-action streaming drama or a graphic novel or audio drama. Uh, the point is that if we are to explore biblical fiction in this way, it is an expansion on what's on scripture, not a revision, not a subversion or a deconstruction or anything like that. Also in this conversation, uh, at Red Hedge Dragon replied, quote, I agree the key is in the genre label fiction. No matter what kind of media you are consuming, as a Christian, you should always be taking in a steady diet of Bible. God appears as a character in all kinds of fiction, but only the Bible is true. End quote. I just rejoice in seeing conversations like that because it's another indication that there are so many people out there who want to be faithful to Scripture. They want to love Jesus more than they love his gifts, but his good gifts do include fiction, and we can enjoy that, including the subgenre of biblical fiction, for his glory in this way. You know, it's funny, Stephen. I, I don't think anyone has ever had a problem imagining something about the apostles. Like, oh, what if this happened? Or what if they did this? Or I wonder what was going on right before this or right after it. We, we don't really seem to worry about that or we don't shut down conversations. But it, it's when it goes on the screen that suddenly we get kind of nervous, isn't it? Because it's like the screen is almost canon in our day and age. 
Well, that's true. And part of that, too, is just because it is a newer technology, there is a legacy in a lot of Christian traditions of a posture of suspicion towards visual media. I mean, that even as far as, uh, or as recently as a few generations ago, there was some suspicion if you went to a movie theater to see one of those moving picture shows. I think that that was a healthy caution, but technology such as movies or streaming drama on your phone, your TV, or wherever, those things can be done for the glory of God. And it's okay then to blend that kind of technology along with storytelling and also to blend that with a healthy and expansion-based view of, of looking at the Bible and asking what if, uh, just like The Chosen does and other biblical fiction works do so well. Yeah, and I, I got a comment from a friend who said he hadn't seen the show yet, because in general he's just not that interested in biblical fiction, but he was really intrigued uh, by hearing what we said about The Chosen. I just keep thinking about how I just want people to watch it because it was so fun. It's like we said in our last episode, it's not like you should watch this to support them or send Hollywood a message. It's just a really fun show, and I think a lot of people can enjoy it. So, Amen. On our next Fantastical Truth episode, we ask, how does one novelist go from Babylon being a political satire writer to creating his own fantastical world with a comedic edge? See, we're funny too. We can do puns. Uh, we've invited Frank Fleming onto Fantastical Truth to share how such often misunderstood genres can uniquely glorify God and reflect our crazy realities. Meanwhile, despite all the trauma and uncertainty in our world, when even our own memories may deceive us, you can trust in Christ, the only reliable narrator of our lives in his story, as we continue to seek and find fantastical truth. <laughs>